Welcome, it's great to have you with us. If you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to be reading... Oh, yep, and sorry, just the children could go out now. Danica and Tom is going to be at the back of the church, and it's time for Sunday school. Or see, Corner Pebble, I should say. Uh, One of the things that we do each week when we meet together for church is... Uh, The custom is we'll have an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading, and you'll see that the choice is very deliberate because the Bible is this beautiful unity between Old and New Testament. Um, And as I was trying to decide on the Old Testament reading this week, um, I was really particularly considering what we're going to be looking at today from God's Word and what He has to say particularly to husbands. Uh, The words of the Lord in the Tenth Commandment Um, really, I think, are pertinent. Because what does God say to us at the heart of things is that he doesn't want us to covet to be with someone else. What is it? The law, at the centre of the law is love. That's why we don't murder, we don't steal, we don't lie, we keep the Sabbath. It's all about love, love for God and love for our neighbour. But also at the heart of love in our marriages is not coveting. Now, that's distinguished, isn't it, between the sixth commandment, oh, sorry, the seventh commandment, which is about not committing adultery. Adultery is also not loving our spouse, but at the heart of it too is not coveting to be with another spouse. And so at the heart of what we're going to be looking at today, keep that in mind, particularly as to what God says to husbands here in Ephesians chapter 5. So I'm going to read from verse 25 um, to verse 33. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray, shall we? Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would open our eyes by your Holy Spirit to see and understand what your will for us is. Give us ears to hear, and be with me, Lord, that how I speak would be true to your word and would be helpful to all of us who listen. And so, Lord, we ask for your blessing now that 
particularly our marriages would be transformed to reflect the gospel. But even though those, Lord, in our number this morning who are single, whether they be male or female, that, Lord, they'll be blessed through what we consider in your word here because it really speaks to all of us. So, Lord, bless us, we pray, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1990s, one of the leaders of the American Christian evangelical scene was a man by the name of Robertson McQuillan. You've probably never heard of him. He was the president of an influential and prestigious college called Columbia Bible College. What is most respected, oh, well, sorry, what he is most respected and remembered for, though, was ironically not his leadership of this particular organisation, but his resignation from it. You see, it wasn't due to a scandal or anything like that. Instead, he chose to resign freely and voluntarily when he was really at the peak of his powers as the president of this particular college. The reason why he freely and of his own accord chose to resign was to look after his wife, who had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. During the last couple of years of his presidency, he wrote that it was increasingly difficult to keep his wife Muriel at home. And when she was with him, she was content. But without him, he became distressed and panic-stricken. Although the walk from their home to the school was about a mile round trip, Muriel would often try to follow her husband to the office. Seeking him over and over again, she would sometimes make the trip between their home and the office ten times every day. When he took her shoes off at night, McQuillan sometimes found her feet bloodied from all the walking that she'd done. Washing her feet, though, prepared him for a similar Christ-like act that he ultimately performed for her. And that is, he sacrificed his position as the president to stay at home and take care of her. What he did is not what the world would associate with headship, is it? But it goes to the very heart as to what the Apostle Paul means by headship. Because biblical headship is really all about sacrificial service. It's about using the authority that God has given you as a husband for the benefit of your wife rather than yourself. That's what headship means. John Stott the famous Anglican theologian, has this really great insight. He says this, It is true that wives are to submit to their husbands, children to their parents and slaves to their masters, and that this requirement of submission presupposes an authority in the husband's parents and masters. But significantly, he then goes on to say this, Yet the word authority is not used once in this passage. When Paul is describing the duties of husbands or parents or masters, 
In no case is it authority which he tells them they are to exercise. On the contrary, explicitly or implicitly, he warns them against the improper use of their authority. He forbids them to exploit their position and he urges them instead to remember their responsibility and the other party's rights. Thus, husbands are to love their wives and care for them. Parents are not to provoke their children, but to bring them up sensitively. And masters are not to threaten their slaves, but to treat them with justice. You see, authority in the Bible doesn't mean tyranny. Instead, it means responsibility. It's about using your position of power or authority or influence for the benefit of someone else, do you see? Now, as I said last week, the expectation uh, and responsibility that the Lord lays down for husbands, I think is that something that far exceeds that of what God says for wives. A lot of people object and even dismiss what God's word says in Ephesians 5. And the reason they do is because they nearly always miss what Paul goes on to say to husbands. It's like they stop reading at verse 24 and then they fail to read the rest of the section. Because it's actually husbands which are the main focus of the passage. Interestingly, they have twice as many verses addressed to them as wives do. Wives have about four verses, uh, but what Paul says to husbands is about eight verses. What's more, the husband is given the example of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ to follow, and in particular what he did on the cross. Just listen to what John Stott once again says. He says, does the requirement of submission sound hard to a wife. I think what is required of husbands is harder. This is not that he love her with the romantic, sentimental or even aggressive passion which frequently passes for genuine love today. Instead, he is to love her with the love of Christ. Now friends, that's much more, isn't it, than being nice. That's being sacrificial. Just as significantly in the original language of the Bible, the only imperatives in the passage are actually addressed to men. An imperative is just simply a grammatical way of referring to an explicit command. And it's only men who are commanded to do something by Paul And that is three separate times they are told to love their wives. It's like us guys in particular need a special word of exhortation and challenge. In fact, I heard a really interesting example of this um, during a wedding once. The preacher stood up uh, and he said at this wedding, Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. And then he sat down. 
That's the command we need to hear, isn't it? It's like, now if you look at your, if you look up uh, your sermon outlines, you'll see that there are only two main points that I want to make today. And both have to do with how we as husbands should love our wives. What does this look like in practice? The first is that biblical headship means loving your wife as Christ loved the church. He is the model for what love means and looks like. And the second is that biblical headship means loving your wife as you love yourself. So love is absolutely integral to both parts. When I started going out with Angie, uh, I had to go and be interviewed. It was the scariest thing I think I've ever done. I had to go and be interviewed by Philip Jensen. She was uh, the women's worker at a very large uh, evangelical Anglican church in Sydney called St. Matthias. I tell you, friends, few things in life have scared me more than an interview with Philip Jensen. He had this laser-like ability to look into your soul. <laughs> and I knew what was worse. I knew he was like this, so I was prepared. You know, I thought in my head. And I sat down at this big conference and I had this one-on-one -on -one interview and he said, okay, young man, are you ready? And I thought, yep, I'm ready. And he said, what is your reason for going out with and wanting to marry Angie? Okay, I thought, right. I have to, I thought, think, think Christianly. This is <laughs> Philip Jensen. Uh, and I said, well, Philip, it's to have a really godly spouse and somebody who I could do ministry with. His face fell. And he said to me, ah, oh, look, I don't think you've quite understood my question. What do you hope to achieve by marrying Angie? Ah, I thought again, and uh, I knew that obviously he was getting at something very biblical and theological, so I'm flicking through the Bible and I think, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And I thought, okay, okay, the first thing that came to mind, I thought, I'll be really honest, can't argue with the Bible. Well, I said, this is a little embarrassing, Philip, but I think my reason for marrying Angie would be so that I don't burn with passion, like it says in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, he sort of smiled and he sort of thought, I thought, oh, no, once again, I've got the wrong answer. He asked me, I think, another four times the question until finally, and to make matters worse, Angie was sitting there nodding her head, giving me this eager look in her eyes going, you know, come on, you know what he's getting at here. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, I think I fluffed around a little bit more and I said, look, Philip, I know that I'm not saying the right thing, so could you just please tell me what the answer is? <laughs> and he smiled and he took a deep breath and he said, well, Mark, isn't your reason for marrying Angie so that you can present her pure and blameless before Christ? And I thought, oh, of course. <laughs> it was so obvious when, uh, as soon as he said it, and what's more, I completely agreed with him. So why didn't I say it? 
Because to my shame, I wasn't thinking about Angie at all. I was actually thinking about myself. I was thinking about how marrying Angie would be a blessing to me. And she has been a blessing to me. But I wasn't thinking of how I was going to be a blessing to her. In all the things that I wanted to achieve, I wasn't thinking of how she might grow to be more like Christ. It was such an insightful question that Philip Jensen asked me that day. And it's something I've never forgot. Although I still need to keep remembering to implement it. I still need to come up, to wake up every day and think, how can I love my wife? Because at the heart of biblical headship is using your authority, which God has given you, to enable your wife to flourish. And if your wife is not flourishing, then your headship is failing. Headship is about serving others as opposed to serving yourself. Brian Chappell puts it even better. He says, Biblical headship is simply the exercise of God-given authority whereby a man does all that he has within his power to see that love, justice and mercy rule in his home even when fostering such qualities requires his own personal sacrifice. It's like that president that gives up his position so he can serve, so he can literally wash his wife's feet, so that he might even give up career so that his wife is comforted. That's headship, isn't it? Unfortunately, a lot of people reject what the Bible says about headship and submission because they think that it's giving men permission to rule as tyrants. And can I just say there's been this tragic thing that sociologists have seen. And it's a very real and present danger, particularly if you're just visiting with us today. What sociologists have found is this. If you attend an evangelical church where the Bible is taught occasionally throughout the year, maybe once or twice, and you hear what the Bible is saying about husbands and wives, sociologists have found this. Those type of men are the most likely to commit domestic violence against their wives out of any group in society. Because what they do is they take a biblical truth and they pervert and they distort it for their own selfish ends. But those same sociologists found this. If you're a person that goes to an evangelical church regularly where the Bible is taught and you hear about this, out of any group in society, you are the least likely to abuse your wife. Isn't that strange? Out of any group in society. Now, it's not just that church attendance is, makes the difference. Can I say, friends, it's, it's the gospel. It's the fact that you know that Christ has first loved and served you, that you then see your headship not as a position to dominate and to rule over. That's the fall. It's that you will use your headship to serve. It's a completely different, radical paradigm. You see, the world says that headship is about manipulating our wives and you end up being a caricature of like Jabba the Hutt in Star Wars, thinking that 
Your wife is really only there to serve you and to meet all of your needs. All I can say to that, though, is that people who think like that, the Bible, that that is what the Bible teaches, don't understand what the Scriptures clearly teach. Because, brothers, can I say to us this morning, headship is not about you. It's not about your rights. It's about her and her needs. It's about love. It's about laying down your life so that Christ might live. Sometimes you'll hear blokes, and sometimes it's quite ugly, to be honest, who will say, I've never changed an appy in my life. Then you've never understood headship. You've never understood service. You've never understood sacrifice. It's about, isn't it, presenting your wife pure and blameless. It's about loving your wife as Christ loved the church. And if he washed his own disciples' feet, as dirty, as filthy as they were in the first century, changing nappies is nothing. John Stott, again, puts it like this. He says, the head of the body is the saviour of the body. The characteristic of headship is not so much lordship as saviourhood. Now, what does that mean? Well, Stott goes on to explain that the church's head is the church's bridegroom and he does not crush the church. Rather, he sacrificed himself to serve her in order that she might become everything he longs for her to be, namely herself in the fullness of her glory. Now, in saying that, don't get me wrong or confuse me, okay? Being the head of a relationship will, it means, I think also at times, making decisions which are unpopular and that your wife might not even um, agree with. Some people actually, I think, redefine headship as another way of essentially, at least in practice, submitting to their wives. That's not what... I think the Apostle Paul is saying. In fact, do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, at the fall? Adam and Eve were both there together when the serpent tempted them. And the problem is, is that the man, Adam, said nothing. Eve was not there when Adam first got the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Only Adam was there. Eve had heard that command secondhand through her husband. And Adam was standing right there next to her when the serpent tempted her. And Adam essentially said, okay, love, whatever you want to do. He acquiesced. He didn't love his wife at that point. He didn't protect her. If you still have your Bibles open, then have a look at verse 25 and 27. Because to love your wife as Christ loved the church will mean three specific things. Number one, it will mean sacrifice, verse 25. Number two, it will mean speaking, verse 26. And finally, it will mean her ongoing sanctification, verse 27. Let me explain very quickly what I mean. Biblical headship first and foremostly means sacrificing yourself as Christ gave himself up for the church. And What we learn from the Bible is Christ is the Son of God. 
So if the Son of God can humble himself as a servant and die on the cross, that's the model. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, How many of us have realised that we are always to think of the married state in terms of the doctrine of atonement? Is that our customary way of thinking about marriage? Where do we find what the books have to say about marriage? Under what section? If you go to the Christian you know, bookstore, Kurong, Reformers, where would you look for the, the books on marriage? Ethics? Christian living? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it shouldn't really belong there. We must, he says, where we should really look for marriage is under the section of, of theology, and in particular the subsection of atonement. If there is no sacrifice for our love or in our love for our wives, brothers, then we are truly failing as heads of our homes. Let me just say that again. It's really important. If there's no sacrifice in our love for our wives, brothers, we are truly failing in our responsibility as heads of our home. We have to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And I'm not just talking about the sacrifice of putting bread on the table. Can I just say, I think that can sometimes be used as a cop-out, as a way of relinquishing the responsibility to truly sacrifice. I'm talking about the practical day-to-day love of dying to self. I'm talking about placing her needs before our own. Just consider how Christ relates to the church. While he was here on earth, nothing was beneath him, was it? He gave us the model of what true service looks like when he washed his disciples' feet. The truly godly man is somebody who's willing to do anything, that nothing is beneath him, who not only sees his wife as his equal, but he so treats her with consideration and respect. That's what biblical headship looks like in practice. It means sacrifice. Following on from that, it will also mean speaking. Uh, This is what I think Paul means in verse 26 when he says that Christ cleansed the church. How? Washing her with water through the word. That's more than I think than just being baptised. It's about being purified through the continual application of the scriptures. Can I just say too many of us are quiet or even silent about spiritual things at home. Our wives, I think, often lead us in spiritual zeal for prayer and study of God's word for discipling other people and I think even for witnessing to unbelievers often. All too often, I think it's very easy for us as men to become distracted or preoccupied or even more passionate about work or sport or entertainment. What was the underlying sin of Adam in the garden? He said he said nothing. Even though the Lord God had specifically instructed him about the danger pertaining to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
the man stood quietly by without uttering a word of correction or caution. And in the end, Adam just simply followed Eve's lead. That was the greater act of culpability, I think. And in the end, why the Bible actually says, through Adam all fell. Interesting, isn't it? It doesn't say through Eve, even though she was the first to sin, because Adam was supposed to protect her. Because if Adam had acted like the man God had created him to be, then the devil would not have succeeded in tempting the woman to eat. So to exercise, I think, true biblical headship is to speak about spiritual things. To want to be, can I, and I, can I put this challenge to us as husbands? Are you the one that initiates at home to lead in prayer? To ask your wife, how is your quiet times going? What are you learning from God's word? In my 25 years of being a pastor, uh, I've probably had to deal with an issue of domestic violence probably four or five times. But do you know the complaint I hear probably the most? And of those four or five times, three of them involved the woman abusing her husband, can I say. But do you know what I hear about the most or the most complaint is husbands not showing enough initiative or leadership in the home. It's that they want their husbands to be ahead. They want their husbands to show more initiative. They want their husbands to lead, but they've checked out. They want their husbands to read the Bible with their children. They want to be pushing them forward in their relationship. With God. They want them to be leading them at church. That's the more common complaint I hear. And look, it's the, the challenge I have in my own heart. The third way to love your wife like Christ loves the church flows out from this, and it's got to do uh, about our wives' sanctification. Have a look at verse 27. Husbands are to be active in their wives' personal growth, not in the sense of changing them to please themselves, but helping them to grow in their likeness to God. We are to act just like Christ did for the church. Brothers, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless to God. Now just imagine what that would look like if we took that really seriously. If we understood our role as headship of being an instrument of grace in the lives of our wives, our, time, our relationships, I think, would be completely transformed, wouldn't they? There's so much more that could be said here, uh, but we need to move on. So biblical headship, first and foremostly, means that we have been called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. The second major point that Paul makes is that biblical headship means that we are to love our wives just as we love ourselves. Now, this, or I think what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, I think, absolutely profound. Because the consequence of building up our wives is that we ourselves are actually personally enriched. You could say, in one sense, there is a selfish end in being unselfish. 
Brian Chappell again puts it like this. He says, simply by examining the lives of our acquaintances, we recognise that men who respect and cherish their wives are typically more whole people. And we see that those husbands whose views of headship allow them to diminish or dispirit their wives are men whose lives are typically emotionally and relationally unhealthy on other fronts as well. Brian Chappell gives this really horrible incident of what he and his wife witnessed firsthand. He says he and his wife used to live um, in an apartment complex uh, amongst Bible college students. And one night they invited all of the couples from the Bible college over to their house for dinner. In fact, um, but they realised that throughout the night as they were playing games and talking one of the couples, one of the men's wives, was not really participating. In fact, she was quite um, so quiet that the situation became really uncomfortable. Finally, after they couldn't take it anymore, the husband explained, I can't believe this, that the reason for his wife was not speaking was because um, he had occasionally been embarrassed by the things that she said in the company of others, and so as a result... He agreed that since he was the head of the house, she should not speak in public unless he granted her permission. Needless to say, it quickly became apparent that there were other problems as well. A few months later, the husband began to suffer from severe depression and he left Bible college and Brian Chappell lost all contact with him. But reflecting on the situation afterwards, this is what Brian Chappell had to say. He said, the Lord had provided this man with a wonderful spouse. And yet, by manipulation and intimidation, he had so weakened her that when he needed her support, she was incapable of providing it. I'd go even further than that. Not only was the man missing out on his wife's support, the way he was treating her was so unloving, I think the Lord was punishing him. The Lord sees and hears everything, doesn't he, friends? He hears and observes everything that goes on behind closed doors. And if we, as the heads of our wives, are not treating them with the love and the care that God expects and commands, we can expect that the God of the Bible will himself intervene. Just listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. One, if you're taking notes, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Isn't that interesting? so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The Lord sees what we do and what we don't do, brothers. And if we fail to love our wives as he expects and commands, then we can actually, we are warned here that he will hold us accountable. We shouldn't expect or think that God will answer our prayers. 
when we ourselves are so hard-hearted to our wives. In fact, the Lord, I think, in his discipline will remove and distance himself from us. Now, none of us are going to have perfect relationships. As we saw in our Bible reading last week in Genesis 3, the consequence of the fall is that there will always be this conflict. God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's going to be the the effect now. There's going to be competition where there should be cooperation. There's going to be conflict where there should be complementarity. But through the power of God's redeeming love, though, it's important that we're different. Rather than rule over our wives, we should seek to lay down our lives for our wives. That's the model. So can I say to my brothers here this morning particularly, let's love our wives like Christ does the church. Let's love our wives as we love ourselves. For it's by acting in this way that we both please and honour and glorify God. And we love our neighbour. Indeed, the neighbour who is lying right next to us. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wife. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. It's uh, really deeply challenging um, and comforting to us. We thank you that you have loved us and given us the model for how we should love others. We want to pray for your forgiveness, particularly as us, for us who are husbands and how we failed in this area. And we pray that you would renew and transform us, that we would love our wives as Christ does the church that we would be a living example and manifestation of the gospel truth that Christ first laid down his life for us. Lord, strengthen us, empower us by your Holy Spirit to love in this way. And we ask it in Jesus' name and we pray, Lord, for all of us, whether we're single or in whatever stage in life, Lord, that we would apply these truths to our own lives in the the own appropriate way as well. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us, for we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response to God's word, shall we?